Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of Confabulation. Today, we are featuring JC at the Rainbow Center. JC is an advocate at the Rainbow Center, and I'm going to let them take it away. Hi, everyone. Um, As a reminder, I am part of the advocacy team here at the Rainbow Center, which is located in downtown Tacoma on Pacific Avenue. And a little bit about myself, I work in one of the departments within Rainbow Center, but the way we're split up, we do advocacy, we also do education. Education is led by um, Lori Lynch, who is a manager of that department. And um, Lori Lynch is fabulous in that she does a lot of group training. So if you're ever in need of bringing someone uh, to come speak to your organization or to just a group of people to become more uh, familiar with terms, regardless of where you're at, um, in terms of your competency with LGBTQ plus issues. And she is more than uh, willing to do that. Um, So I can also share um, their information afterwards. Um, But with advocacy, a lot of what we do is we work with the community ranging from different types of identities, uh, both in Tacoma and outside um, like cities and counties within Washington. A lot of our um, training comes from the Office of Victims of Crime, um, as well as our funding and a lot of our resources. So uh, advocates are trained to help you with whatever concerns you might have, um, whether you be in the LGBTQ plus community or be someone who is a victim of crime. We um, have a pretty um, wide range of folks that we help. So a little bit about me. Uh, My name is JC. I use they, them pronouns. I identify as non-binary. And um, I've been here at the Rainbow Center for about, um, I want to say a little over four months. So it's pretty, pretty new. I started um, right after Pride. Uh, So that was a lot of fun to just kind of walk into the mix of everything happening. Uh, Pride was virtual this year. So um, it was an experience, but it was still a lot of energy and a lot of community members coming together to organize that. Prior to working at the Rainbow Center, I used to work at PCAF, which is formerly known as Pierce County AIDS Foundation. Um, So my work has been primarily as a frontline worker uh, doing HIV testing, Um, Also, PrEP navigation, for a lot of you who might not know what PrEP is, uh, it stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So PCAF is a great resource and companion that we have, and we send people who might have questions about either getting on PrEP or getting tested, as well as educating yourself on uh, the different services that we offer for folks wanting to know more about HIV. Um, And yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, prior to PCAF, I was at University of Puget Sound, um, and I'm excited to be here with everyone today. We're excited to have you, JC. Um, so to kind of highlight your organization, what other services do you guys offer? It seems like you guys are a great hub for the LGBTQ plus community. So that's a great question. Um, the physical building we also share with OASIS who offers a lot of similar um, resources and programs. Um, However, they focus more on youth. So youth and 
don't quote me on this, but I believe it's 14 to 24. Um, and I can clarify that um, afterwards as well, but that is correct. <laughs> okay. And um, as Rainbow Center, we offer a lot of services ranging from referrals uh, to different uh, needs the community might have. So for example, we have that great relationship with PCAV as well as the Department of Health when people are interested in knowing more about testing, uh, staying up to date with your sexual health. Uh, we also have a lot of education, which I mentioned Lori Lynch earlier. She does a lot of customized classes based on the population that she is teaching. Uh, so she has a lot of resources when it comes to that. Um, we also offer um, every Thursday we have Caring with Pride, which is um, in a very, it's done in a way that's compliant with social distancing rules per Pierce County, but we offer food uh, made fresh every Thursday by Alma Mater. Uh, we also offer clothing, we offer canned goods, resources, and it ranges from week to week, depending on the donations that we have. So in the past, we've had flashlights and things that um, are considered uh, useful for our houseless population as well. And it's open to everyone. So we ask no proof of anything, no ID. People can just walk into the Rainbow Center um, one by one. We usually have a line and we have it lined up pretty safe. So people can come in, get resources, get food. And if you want to connect to an advocate, we also have that option. Um, and other than that, we also um, have our gala, which is coming up. Uh, it's very exciting. You can find more information on that on our Rainbow Center website for dates, as well as ways you can participate, celebrate, and uh, be part of the um, uh, Black and White Gala. So. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. um, can, can you talk about kind of what your role at the Rainbow Center, like what what does a typical day look like? Um, and then I'm also curious, like why you got started in, you know, this line of work, you know, through PCAF and now you're at the Rainbow Center. Um, kind of what motivates you to, you know, do this type of work? Yes. So I think through and through, since I graduated uh, from University of Puget Sound, I've stuck to the harm reduction model. So I've been doing a lot of that work, both at PCAF and here at the Rainbow Center. And that's um, through the advocacy work that we're doing. So a normal day here is the first step to helping someone is they reach out, we make an appointment, uh, we talk about the different services that we might offer in terms of advocacy. So that once again could range from um, providing a community member with uh, means for transportation. So if there's someone who is needing to get somewhere, we can provide that. We also have, um, um, we don't do case management. We do more acute services rather than long-term. So we try to really uh, touch on what um, needs the community might need at the moment uh, based on referrals. We also um, get funding to help people with a myriad of different things, whether it be from housing assistance to mental health vouchers, uh, bus passes, like I mentioned, uh, food resources, and uh, so much more. So generally, because of COVID, we have been focusing in on 
population that has been mostly affected by this um, on top of everything else. So recently we worked with Pierce County with the eviction prevention uh, program, helping community members catch up up to three months uh, worth of their rent. Um, we've done such a good job that we've gone through those funds, but we um, uh, had such a great time uh, reaching out to community members and connecting them to this very needed service. That's amazing. So touching more, cause we do domestic violence here at our sister's house, touching more on that. Do you guys do any of that at the Rainbow Center? Yes, so generally we do an intake. Um, our funding does come from victims of crime. So we do try to connect people to the resources, whether it be mental health resources or people who can um, mitigate the situation um, to a way where it reflects the needs of the client. Um, one of the questions that was highlighted in the questionnaire that was sent to me is based on um, a heterosexual person versus people within the LGBT community, what are the differences when it comes to um, DV? And I would say that when it comes, it, every situation is different. This is information that is generally not generalizable. Um, and it requires a focus on the different identities and intersection a person is going through. So with the population that we serve, there could be a myriad of different things ranging from citizenship, uh, sexual identity, uh, gender, uh, race, and all these things. So we really try to look at every intake on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, paying attention to the different intersections that might apply to them. So some of the myths surrounding the differences between DV and the heterosexual community versus um, LGBTQ+, is that we always try to look at uh, the cases on an individual level. Like we try to combat myths surrounding that only heterosexual uh, women can be uh, victims of crime, but rather try to look at the different um, institutions of power, different um, ways that a client is being marginalized and try to uh, look at studies and really apply it to uh, the different circumstances we're working with. Wow. So, oh, I, oh. yeah. <laughs> sorry, this is Jill, JC. One of the things I really struggle with, and it's just because of a lack of knowledge, um, is okay, we both our agencies serve specific populations, but we know those populations intersect in all different ways. And um, I don't think we get a very large amount of LGBTQ plus clients. I might be wrong, but I'm the legal advocate. So I know that um, that population for me is very small in my advocacy. But one of the things I am wondering is how, what, what issues center, center around keeping the LGBTQ plus um, population safe within a domestic violence situation? Like what are some of the key things? Um, yeah, well, because, you know, black females experience DV differently from white females. So if you intersect that again with um, the LGBTQ issues, 
surrounding DV? I mean, what kinds of things are you seeing or that you experience that, um, that are keeping the, those populations safe? So I think first is acknowledging that uh, within our society, often victims are seen as um, uh, white women within certain um, ideologies. So we really try to stay away from that dynamic of uh, only fitting victims within one um, scope of identity. So one of the things that we have to pay really close attention when looking at uh, the different cases is how transphobia plays into it, how racism plays into it, how homophobia plays into it. And we really try to get away from this binary of what it means to be a victim versus a perpetrator and try to look at the different um, intersections that someone is um, occupying. And we really try to look at this in a case by case basis. Um, I think that it could be, it's a really challenging question to ask just because the answer is not generifiable. Like I mentioned, I don't know if that's a term, but it's <laughs> a way that it's um, complex, nuanced in different ways, depending on the identity. So uh, we really try to pay attention to those things um, as well. Often within um, uh, LGBTQ uh, couple, there's different criteria you have to take into account because often those that binary is not helpful in any way and it's also not present in the way that uh, society tries to push it on when it comes to identifying victims. Yeah, I mean, that that's true um, because I'm a Black female. So if I have a Black female client, those subtle nuances, I understand um, as long as we're both, I'm cisgender, as long as my client is cisgender as well. But if my client is not cisgender, then that's when I start wondering, what am I doing the right things to keep this person safe when, like you say, they're occupying a certain space, right? That I don't occupy, that I don't have any really grounded knowledge in, so. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. It was a challenging question. <laughs> no, but, no, and that's fine. That's an important question that we all have to grapple with. And I think the important part you highlighted is always acknowledging the ways that we're different from the clients and how the ways we are privileged, the ways we um, experience life differently. Uh, so that's why I, can't, I couldn't speak to a lot of questions directly aimed towards the experiences of Black trans women just because of um, trying to avoid generalizations, trying to speak for a community, and also um, really trying to include those who are being posed questions into the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. What stereotypes or myths about the LGBTQ plus community would you like to break down? Um, that like a lot of people perceive that might go on in the LGBTQ plus community that you would like to kind of, I guess, squash in a sense, like kind of educate people on and familiarize us with as well as advocates. Definitely. So as a kind of go to for me, I always try to go to 
um, Kimberly Crenshaw's definition of intersectionality um, and see the ways in uh, which our society often sees identities is we're not able to see them in tandem with other identities. So with the LGBTQ community, um, I feel like people often um, see that and nothing um, beyond uh, what other identities might be intersecting with, such as citizenship, gender, race, class, and others. So to, to answer your question, I think that one of the things that we really need to stay away from is that the LGBTQ plus community is a monolithic community. And I think that um, that could be one of the more deleterious assumptions when it comes to um, the experiences of people. So for example, when I was working as uh, doing outreach, educating people on PrEP, um, one of the disparities that uh, we found as a team is that often people who have access to pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a, um, uh, a medicine people take in order to prevent uh, the contraction of HIV, um, is that often the population that had most access to this was within the LGBTQ community was white upper middle class men. So when it came to our work, we really had to find ways in which we could reach out to those who are often left out, which historically have been black trans women, uh, people within the Latinx community, and even then we can get more specific, those who um, aren't citizens, those who are uh, feminine, queer. Um, and so just really paying attention to uh, not using, the ways that using an umbrella term like LGBTQ uh, plus can be detrimental to people who might um, have different experiences within that. So I feel like that that is probably the number one um, problematic assumption to make when it comes to any issue uh, that, uh, pertains to LGBTQ uh, plus community, but also um, specifically when looking at domestic violence. Like I said, some of this uh, data will often be based on binaries, so it's important to pay attention to that. And that isn't always giving us uh, the full scope of what the picture is for different circumstances. Um. JC, can you, <clears throat> this is for my education as well, can you explain the, give definitions and explain the difference between queer, gender fluid, and non-binary? So um, once again, I'm going to be um, reverting back to um, our education expert, which is Lori Lynch. A lot of the sessions that we do have uh, based on that, because it is a very nuanced um, uh, definition based on different experiences, uh, she can be reached out uh, to have classes specifically tied to identity. Um, for me, I identify as um, non-binary, um, and that is something that I'm coming to terms with, but my experience is going to be different from others. Um, but in order to give you a more inclusive definition that is um, also approved by the Rainbow Center. Um, I will reach out to Lori Lynch and be sure that that question 
is either addressed uh, directly or maybe we're interested in a class where we talk specifically about identity. But it, it falls um, under um, an identity that doesn't normally go into what we understand as binary. So going against uh, the cis gender identity um, and it's important to really pay attention to the ways that those three differ from each other. Um, but I, I can get back to you on that question. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what do you think like are the biggest needs that might not be met right now for the LGBTQ community, specifically maybe in Tacoma or you know this area in particular? So based on the population that we work with, I would say that housing, um, both affordable housing, shelters that um, are inclusive to queer youth, uh, to trans folks within the LGBTQ community are so needed right now, uh, especially as um, we see a rise in COVID cases, there's more restrictions and barriers for folks to be able to find shelter within some of these uh, places around Tacoma. So um, I, it is my hope that in the future we could see more funds um, focused for LGBTQ plus housing, specifically for youth um, and others. So that's probably one of the more needed resources. We can say that that is a very much needed resource, especially with the amount of phone calls we get daily. People are usually seeking housing or shelter. And it's sad to be like, the waiting lists are really long and we don't know how to provide you with something permanent. Cause like, we know that they're gonna call back the next week if we put them into shelter and the shelter kicks them out. And then okay. on top of that, with all the issues that they're dealing with, with COVID, it's hard to get people into shelters cause shelters are a lot more compact now. So I definitely feel you on that one for sure. <laughs> um, I would say I would like to know more about your personal journey, especially being a member of the LGBTQ plus community. I know you don't want to speak for all, but I would like to learn more about your journey. Um, how was it like coming out as non-binary? How did you have to define it for your parents, especially with my parents being very old school? How did you have to teach your family members and what ways can um, people of that community who are coming out, what ways can they teach their family members to be more comfortable with the community or to be more accepting with the community? Yes. Um, so for me, and um, I'll try to keep it in a concise answer, but for me, my experience is, has been a long one. Um, I feel like it's been more than just one closet that I've come out, not only in terms of um, my identity, um, my sexuality, but also like how my uh, citizenship or lack thereof really um, affects how I am um, understanding my identity as like as I was growing up. So I came to the United States when I was 14. So I feel like during that time I was uh, understanding myself more as a queer person, um, which in my mind at that time differed from what I understood um, Western definitions of uh, white, cis um, uh, gay people was. So I feel like that 
process that took me a long time. Um, I recently came out as non-binary, but I feel like I've always understood myself as different uh, from um, people uh, who are upper middle class white cis uh, folks. So also finding mentors within the community, such as Yosimar Reyes, who is occupies the space of being undocumented and queer, and really learning more about what that means. Uh, and I feel like within recent years, I've seen more of, because I've sought out these resources, of representation within different intersections of identity, such as Yosimar Reyes, uh, Julio Salgado, um, and different people that are speaking to how uh, culture, race, and different factors kind of um, give you a different experience when it comes to um, these binaries. Um, so yeah, that's been pretty much it. I think one of the things that really uh, influenced me um, as a, a youth was seeing, I think it was in 2015, uh, there was a, a, a pride parade that happened in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, it was all over the news because it got intercepted by um, uh, Pueblo uh, folks from the community who were advocating for um, undocumented and um, migrant indigenous people uh, that are often left out of the conversation as Pride became more um, cis heteronormative and more, or cis, cis normative and more uh, corporate. So I feel like that was an instance where I saw um, ideas kind of founded by uh, Silvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson really manifested. Whereas I feel like prior to that, um, we were more headed in this direction of uh, mainstream uh, respectability politics, um, LGBTQ experiences. So I feel like that was one of the instances that kind of led me in this journey in terms of trying to always question what it means to be Latinx, what it means to not be a citizen, what it means to be all that in conjunction to being uh, non-binary. Um, I've also paid a lot of attention to um, like authors such as authors and public speakers like uh, Alok, uh, Veid Menon, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, Yosimar Reyes. And I'm, it's, a, it's a constantly like evolving term. And I'm always trying to find the different ways that my identity is uh, being shifted by other aspects of me. So what resources would you tell, because um, I feel like you found a lot of resources specific to your intersection being undocumented, being Latin, and being queer, well, being non-binary. So what resources would you, well, how would you tell people in their specific intersection to seek out resources so that they could be more comfortable with their identity or even finding their identity? So I think a great place to start is by reaching out to the Rainbow Center, <laughs> if you are able to. Um, I also think that there's a lot of great public speakers uh, speaking on different um, identities that are often not found um, 
within mainstream LGBTQ uh, narratives. So for example, Alok is a great person that um, is very public both in, on social media. Uh, you can find a lot of texts by them. They use they, them pronouns. Um, and uh, participating in some of the education classes provided by the Rainbow Center. Um, right now we have a fabulous um, youth uh, focus class that is both theater based and also uh, focused on learning more about the terminology led by Lori Lynch. Um, and always, I know that depending on where you're living in Washington or the United States, your resources can be very limited, but seeking out uh, different agencies, community groups, book clubs um, uh, that are starting these conversations and uh, facilitating information for it to be available uh, to the community. Uh, for me, something that has been very grassroots, informative and helpful has been scenes. So I was such a big um, nerd growing up that my uh, favorite place to go to was a library and they had a huge collection of uh, scenes from different community members around, um, uh, around the area. So. I really, um, I want to encourage folks to never narrow down your resources by just um, relying on one agency or one group, but rather seeing the um, very fruitful and uh, different experiences that exist um, within your, your city, your town. A great answer to that question. Um, as like an advocate, someone who's, you know, um, identifies, you know, I'm heterosexual, how, you know, if I'm working with, you know, a survivor who identifies with the LGBTQ community, what's the best thing that, you know, I can do to best serve them in working with oh, them? Once again, um, that is a... Um, very circumstantial question, but I think always acknowledge your bias, acknowledge your uh, privilege is very important. Um, find a way to um, eliminate barriers by identifying hierarchies and different systems of power that, you know, might be visible um, in terms of uh, the barriers or might not, because often uh, something that I really like to refer to is um, Robin D'Angelo's metaphor when talking about white privilege to white people is that often because you're surrounded by something, uh, you might not acknowledge it right away. So uh, a really fabulous uh, metaphor she uses is when a fish is being asked about water, they're not really able to uh, define it because it's something that's uh, constantly surrounding it, uh, hence the uh, title Seeing the Water. So being uh, able to understand the different ways that you're perpetuating hierarchies for the victim um, that could uh, present possible barriers uh, and prevent them from fully opening up, I think is the best uh, first step to really um, understand how to better uh, serve them. So. I feel like a lot of, historically, a lot of uh, nonprofits and agencies might have a model that uh, served a very white supremacist ideas. And as we're working 
towards combating that, um, I think it's always important for us to um, pay attention to those barriers, whether visible or not. Gabe, those, just, oh, oh, go ahead, Joe. I was say, Gabe just asked the question I asked first, just more clearly. Thank you. <laughs> mine, mine was a little convoluted. I was trying to put too much into it, but but yeah, the answer you just gave Gabe helped me out as well because that's really what I was trying to get at how how to best serve that client. Are those types of things, some like things you might go over like in an intake with the client, if you feel like, you know, that's something you feel like talking about, or do you ever address that in your intakes? I think the best way of addressing it is paying attention to how much you're speaking versus the client. I think allowing room for the client to open it up to questions and Inviting that conversation is something that my manager, Tara, taught me very, um, and I'm still trying to learn because often uh, the questions that are in an intake form might not address or invite uh, a specific client to open up in the way that could be most helpful to them. So being able to um, ask more open-ended questions, allowing them to um, be comfortable in the space. Um, is something that kind of guides me towards um, having a client address some of these um, uh, barriers. So I think that not always we're going to be able to address every barrier that exists in terms of the um, uh, client's identity, but I think trying our best is um, to be aware of what those might be is so important. So you're talking about barriers. I was wondering if you could give some examples of some like challenges or barriers that someone experiencing domestic violence that's a part of the LGBTQ community um, might experience when they're trying to, you know, get or receive help. So one instance that comes to mind is um, clients might not often know what resources are available to, to them. And that might not always be communicated by some of the uh, generic questions that might be in an intake form. So I think um, seeing the patterns, um, realizing that it might take more than one intake to really figure out how to help a, a client is important. Um, so for example, I had one client that was for a long time coming in for um, help with transportation, whether that be bus passes or what have you, and being within those, um, those intersections, um, he didn't know how far he could go in terms of asking for help in more uh, root of the problem way. Um, so it took us really sitting down with the client and um, asking why, like uh, certain services can be very on the surface and for the moment they're helpful, but really finding ways to communicate to the client that we also have um, services that might help them more long-term. So for this client, it was finding transitional housing that would put them away from uh, this very toxic and harmful living situation. So I feel like communicating with um, other advocates within the team um, and asking more questions that um, 
might allow for the client to uh, feel, feel more free when having these conversations, um, allowed us to really look at the root of the problem as being their toxic living situation and helping them transition to somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important, especially that I noticed with a lot of clients, you know, they want, they're always putting a bandaid on a solution that's never really, you know, going to help them out long-term. It might be, you know, a break for a few days or, you know, just getting a bus pass, um, but it's not getting to the root of the pro- biggest problem. And I think that's, you know, really important to be able to get people to, you know, express their needs and, you know, what they're going through. So an advocate making them feel comfortable and, you know, providing those resources to get to that route, I think is really important. Absolutely. Um, And here at the Rainbow Center, we're a small team. So we try to always avoid um, like falling into this expert trap. So we always try to uh, question um, our procedures and try to really uh, interrogate some of these questions um, based on different circumstances um, and also uh, not get comfortable in, in one space, but be able to move as needed, depending on what circumstances um, uh, present uh, problems for the client. What questions do you think we should add on to our intake? I think that we recently just updated our intake um, a while back, but now that I look at it, we do have like, we ask them what their pronouns, what pronouns they would be comfortable with. Um, but I don't think that we have it very more specific to make anyone who is part of the community come out and tell us that they are part of the community. Um, I think sometimes they do try to hide it. And what, what ways can we make them feel more comfortable? What questions should we include in our intake for them to be comfortable with us? Um, knowing that part of their identity. So our intake is also constantly evolving and demographic questions are historically like problematic. Mm -hmm. So even if they might not, well, this is a more controversial take on this, but (laughs) because for reporting, of course, a lot of these questions can be even more so problematic, right? So the way the state looks at demographics uh, versus how your agency that's evolving and Uh, keeping up with these terms might be different. So always allowing the intake to have a space where um, it gives agency to the client to uh, not just check a box, but give you a narrative of what uh, uh, differences in their identity uh, might not be reflected in that form. So I feel like because of that, our form is constantly evolving and we're aware that we're not always going to have every box to fulfill every different um, situation. So um, I think that that's one that's important. Also making um, intakes accessible in terms of um, language, Um, not only sending our intake to be translated by an agency, but also make sure that that translation is um, the vernacular used by a certain population, Uh, different things to really pay attention to. For example, I'm speaking about uh, Spanish, often Castilian Spanish, when a, when a form gets translated by an agency, it can be very, um, um, people can have a hard time, even when they're native Spanish speakers, just because that dialect might not be similar to what they're, um, what they're used to. So 
I think just having an open mind and being able to shift your intake as you move forward, um, keeping up with the, the um, terms being used currently and understanding that they're constantly evolving. And maybe that's something that you have to revisit uh, every couple of months or so and always allowing a space for folks to um, write down a more extensive narrative of not just their circumstance, but their identity and uh, demographic information. Sounds good. Do you have any questions or other? Okay. Oh, oh, I was gonna ask JC, what um, mental health, because we know, you know, historically that moving through these different spaces and intersections um, can be traumatic and can cause a lot of trauma. And so um, in order to deal with that, what mental health um, um, resources do you, do you guys, do you guys refer any clients out to, or, I mean, you know, like, how am I trying to say this? Well, yes. if, I, if I'm having a mental health issue and it is directly correlated with the fact that I'm a black female, I really want to see a black therapist, preferably a female one who can under really kind of understand or has been through my exact trauma and knows how to give me the tools to deal with what I'm going through. Are there resources for the LGBTQ plus community in as insofar as mental health is concerned that we should be aware of? Yes, so um, I'm gonna talk about specifically the work we do, but um, we are contracted with different um, LGBTQ plus uh, competent therapists. So a way that we um, challenge some of these barriers is by having a long-term relationship with these um, uh, therapists. We also get feedback as to how the sessions went based on clients, both from the uh, mental health therapist perspective, as well as the client. Um, and we always either, well, now that we're doing uh, mostly online intakes, we send the bios of each of the mental health specialists to the client and give them absolute agency when it comes to picking a person that they uh, most identify with based on their intersections. Of course, this doesn't always um, uh, work ideally just because you know, looking at mental health specialists here in the area, it, it does um, leave out BIPOC um, uh, specialists who might be better serving that community based on the circumstance. Um, and it's often very uh, white, very cisgendered. So I think um, really looking out for these resources, coming as a team and uh, making referrals that best fit um, the client's desires is so important. Uh, so for example, right now we are looking for a Spanish speaking uh, mental health specialist to contract with and add to our, uh, our mental health uh, voucher program. Um, so that's a challenge because they um, also have to be LGBTQ plus competent. And so trying to find someone within these intersections um, in an industry that is very white dominant and cisgender dominant uh, can be a challenge, but 
Um, in short, always at least attempting to make these connections is so important. Yeah, I think it's important too, because I think, you know, because we live in such a white, you know, patriarchal society that, you know, a lot of people's different ways in which they move through all these different types of intersections, um, especially when they're in that space, you know, you're living in that space. It's so important to have those resources. Um, and and to, for me, it's not to say that, you know, just because you are a black female, that you're gonna be a good therapist for me or a good fit. Um, I might find a better fit with a white female who is just very competent about um, the issues that you know, that you know affect me, right? So um, just I, I think we have a, a huge shortage of those types of therapists that are very knowledgeable about all these different communities that need to be served that are not white males as gender. And it's not only like I think that it's not only connecting them to these services, but also there's some we can come at it from so many different ways because uh, within certain communities, mental health conversations can be very stigmatized as well. So within the Latinx community, which is once again, also not a monolithic community, there are different uh, levels of stigma that exist when uh, having uh, trust with not only mental health providers, but uh, primary care providers in general. So there's so many challenges when it comes to not just referring them to um, mental health specialists, but also finding a way for them to even get to that point. So with our services, um, we don't necessarily require that people have insurance, for example, that often leaves out a lot of um, undocumented folks that might not realize that they have agency and have different ways of seeking out mental health services. Um, as well as low-income folks or people who might not um, have access to um, um, healthcare services so, um, or insurance, pardon me. Uh, so I think that, yes, this is a, a, a challenge that we can come at it in various different ways, but I think most importantly is fighting that stigma. Yeah, thank you, because you just answered my next question about how, how to really get the client there, meeting the client where they're, they're at, and then, you know, moving forward. So thank you. Thank you. What ways are we, because we serve the Black population, and I understand that there is a huge stigma around mental health. Usually when we are suggesting mental health, I usually have to warm them up to it, see if they're open to it. Um, and usually I suggest support group first. And I'm like, how did support group go? Did you like it? Do you feel better about support group? Are you ready to do this one-on-one? -on -one or do you want to go to support group um, again and try it again? So which ways do you guys warm up um, members of the community that are Black and Latinx or who have a stigma around mental health so that they can go get the help that they need? So I think first and foremost is normalizing conversations surrounding uh, mental health. Um, so looking at um, ways that 
we can introduce, whether it be through an event, having a table that, well, not right now during COVID, but in the past, what we would do is we would try to present these different um, access to resources in a way that um, might not be as direct as um, having a conversation one-on-one, but always letting them know that this resource exists for a time um, when they need it. So when their ability to internalize a lot of this and be okay with it um, comes, they're able to seek out the person who initially connected them to it. So um, I feel normalizing conversations surrounding mental health um, when that stigma exists is um, so important for those reasons. Very, very true. Very true. I think that having those conversations and making a lot more people who are of color comfortable with it by asking them, why don't you want to go to mental health therapy? What problems would you have with a mental health therapist? How can I make you more comfortable? If not mental health therapy, what are other options you would like to do? Um, What things like I think those are very important conversations, especially when dealing with in the social work field to have with everybody, honestly, because a lot of people don't want to seek mental health because they don't want to see that while there's an issue with me, making them comfortable enough to be like, well, I go to a therapist too. And you just complimented me and said that I may seem like I have it all together. No one ever has it all together and making them comfortable around those types of conversations. So yes, normalizing mental health is a huge thing and not making it seem like only these types of people go to mental health therapy. A lot of people go to mental health therapy. Usually I'm like, well, Bill, like Bill Gates goes to mental health therapy too. And he's successful. Like I talk about a lot of celebrities that seek mental health or have talked about it. Cause then they're like, wow, I didn't know that. Cause this is how mental health is usually perceived in a lot of communities of color. Um, I think that also going off like your comments surrounding support groups is a massive part of that. Like being able to connect with um, affinity groups that are within a certain identity uh, is so important. So whether that be uh, black and brown uh, or uh, within the LGBTQ community, having those spaces where this identity um, is in a place where they can feel safe uh, is so important and seeing others from uh, your community um, get up and normalize these conversations is probably like uh, one of the best um, answers to normalizing uh, mental health. Um, I'm really wondering about um, how COVID is affecting the LGBTQ plus community because we hear all these reports about how it's affecting the black community. Um, the Latin community um, in different ways, but you, we never hear on the news or anywhere anything being reported out about how it's affecting the LGBTQ plus community. And I'm wondering if you can maybe speak a little bit about that. Yeah, um, once again, I think understanding that LGBTQ community is also affected by issues that affect black and brown folks, really paying attention to how the LGBTQ plus community is not monolithic. Uh, different people within the LGBTQ community also um, experience a huge um, uh, 
are affected in a big way by houselessness, uh, food insecurity, um, access to uh, proper health care, um, and really trying to get away from um, just looking at this identity as um, kind of like a one size fits all is, is so important. Um, and I would love to do more research on that question and maybe get back to you on uh, specifically looking at different intersections within the LGBTQ community that are more disproportionately being affected during these times. So of course, right off the bat, we've seen a lot of studies of black and brown folks being affected by this. Um, historically, trans black women have a high rate of unemployment, access to healthcare, um, and that in times of COVID, I would imagine only intensifies. But I will pose that question to the team and maybe have a more um, um, researched answer to that, that question will be our next steps moving forward because we've definitely seen an increase in folks needing resources during this time here at the Rainbow Center that are, have also historically been affected by uh, different disparities uh, based on class, gender, race, and um, other factors. Yeah, because I think, yeah, looking at the disproportionalities um, in, uh, in a research-based statistical kind of data-driven um, format would be really interesting. Um, and, how, and how that intersection um, really is being affected. I, I think that'd be pretty interesting to see. And, and the whys of it, you know, the why is this happening at this time and why is the disproportionality going this way or that? Um, yeah, I think that'd be pretty interesting. Something, and this is just um, on, from my personal experience, but something that kind of bothers me, kind of related to this uh, conversation that we're having is NPR will often say terms that are so umbrella where like, who is this really affecting? So for example, one of the terms that I recently heard is women and minorities. And that is, I feel like does such a disservice to the different identities that exist within that. So by yeah. women, do you only imply white women? And yeah. when you say minorities, do you mean uh, uh, people of color that are cisgender? So it, um, yeah, I, I think that being able to get away from these catch-all phrases is uh, so important. Um, and and I, I, it's easy for us to say that. Often we feel so comfortable within our bubbles, but um, even listening to the public radio and uh, paying attention to the ways that their statistics are not necessarily focusing on those who are more disproportionately affected is, is so important moving forward. And I always yeah. try to question that. Yeah, I agree. Even the term people of color, it's like lumping all of us together and, and it, it's just kind of, and then the women and people of color thing was just, it's just really ridiculous, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you've made, and you've made this point several times during the set the session here is just moving away from those um, looking at a group of people as monolithic, you know, and homogenizing every everything within that group, um, just because it's a shared culture. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think those are important things to look at. 
because sometimes I, I just want to cringe and not in this situation, but in certain situations, especially when it's used by um, white men, <laughs> you know, it's like people of color, like we see our politicians. I, I just kind of want to cringe at that because, you know, you're just lumping all, all these people together and they're experiencing life um, in such different ways because of so many things that intersect through their lives. So yeah, thank you for that. Speaking of the media, I think the media does a huge, cause now I'm just thinking back to like all these Netflix episodes I've watched and they how they portray people of the LGBTQ community. And it's usually, um, white like a white gay man and like their biggest problem is being gay like they don't have any other problems surrounding them like that is their biggest issue now you're talking about all of these different intersectionalities and I was like it would be more interesting to see people that are part of the LGBTQ community that are experiencing different intersections and making this more normal because I think that they put white and gay together to kind of make it more digestible for a lot more people because they don't want to have to explain all the other issues that might go on with different intersections. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Historically, like there's been a uh, uh, whitewashing of uh, LGBTQ plus uh, movements. Uh, so for example, not too long ago, there was a uh, either on Netflix or some mainstream um, uh, uh, program, they had a uh, show focused on the Stonewall riots, no mention of um, the black and brown leaders that led this kind of revolution in Stonewall. So no mention of Marsha P. Johnson, no mention of Sylvia Rivera. Marsha P. Johnson was a black trans woman. Sylvia Rivera was a Latinx trans woman. Um, and I think you're completely right. Often uh, there's this whitewashing that happens in order to make this more digestible to the mainstream. Um, so that happens in all uh, kind of like uh, aspects of society, so. Yeah, cause now then, you know, you're, then it, you, it goes back to playing these respectability politics and, and what can, like Joy said, what can be digested? And, and, and it, it moves to education too, you know. Um, you know, the, the slavery has been, done the historical um, aspects of slavery have been all but, you know, whitewashed out of our history books and how many people even know about Stonewall? You know, is it, it, you know, these are things that are part of our history that all should be able to have access to. It should be taught in schools. Everyone should be represented in a historical manner. But again, you know, what's going to be digested by the, the larger part of our, our country, which is white and um, heterosexual and male. <laughs> I really want to thank you for putting an emphasis on the intersectionalities, because that I feel like would make us a little bit more aware of 
this isn't like how the media paints the community. This isn't all that just goes on in the community. There's a multitude of different things that go on in any community. And we should treat the LGBTQ community just like we would any community, just like all the intersectionalities in the Black community that happen, it's going on in that community as well. And I think that when you sit here and you talk about different communities, kind of reflect on yourself and be like, well, what goes on in my community? Because that's what's going on in their community, most likely. And I want to thank you so much for joining us here on Confabulation today and (laughs) highlighting the Rainbow Center. I think you guys are an amazing resource. And I hope that a lot more people will go to you guys. And um, I hope that this resource has now been highlighted a lot more because we refer a lot of people to you guys, to be honest. We're like, checked out the Rainbow Center. (laughs) Like, So I'm glad we were able to get you guys on here to speak more about what you guys do, especially those education purposes I think are huge and very much needed yeah thank you so much thanks for coming because you know if these stories and experiences need to be told and they don't need to be told by people that are outside of that community they need to be told by people in that community who are experiencing different um, aspects of what what life throws at them and what, you know, what they are going through. Um, and so I'm, I'm really appreciative that I hope you come back and we do need to get together and, 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 um, and do some of these things, like look at some of those statistics and, and answer some of the questions that, um, you know, that, that we have, I think that'd be really interesting for us to meet and do that and give us a better understanding of um, the LGBTQ plus community um, because it's really important. I think it's very important. Um, and, and as a black female who is cisgender, <laughs> I'm really interested um, because I know a lot of my black sisters out there who are trans and um, are having a hard, hard time. And um, I, I want to be able to be of some assistance as much as I can to, and some service to them in any way I can. But I need, I need your help. I need your education about certain things or the Rainbow Center anyway, because you guys have been around for a long time. Um, I was, I, I first heard about you guys when I was in grad school. A lot of, a lot of students um, worked at the Rainbow Center and interned there and really enjoyed it. So thank you so much for being there for the community and coming on today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And once again, I'm just one person, but as a team, um, I will pose a lot of these questions that you had today and try to uh, answer them in a, a more uh, complete way as different people from different um, capacities and experiences are able to give us more insight because as a team, yeah. we always work better. Yeah. Um, and I really look forward to working with you more um, and learning more about the different ways that we could collaborate to better serve the community. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yes, of course. So I'm gonna just close out the podcast. Um, Thank you guys for joining us on another episode of Confabulation. We are located on the north end of Tacoma and we are stationed here at our sister's house and we hope to catch you on the next episode.